Welcome to the RUF City Campus podcast. New York City is home to nearly 1 million undergraduate students, and RUF City Campus exists to reach those students with the gospel and equip them to serve. In order to accomplish this mission, we rely 100% on generous donations from individuals and churches. If you'd like to make a donation, please visit give to ruf.org today. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This semester in RUF, we are studying relationships all semester long. And we're asking the question, how can the ancient wisdom of the Bible bring life into our relationships? And tonight, what we are talking about is singleness, which is the Bible's shorthand for uh, anyone who is not married. Anyone who has not taken vows to marry another person is a single person in the eyes of the Bible. And the reason this is an, an important topic for us to discuss is because of Michael Scott. Um, one of the greatest rivalries in the history of television is Michael Scott versus Toby Flinderson. If you are a fan of The Office or if you never watched the television show The Office, Michael Scott is the regional manager of a paper company, a small paper company in Scranton, Pennsylvania. And he is desperate for the approval of his employees. He wants to be fun. He wants to be funny. He wants to be loved. And in his efforts to pursue those things, it often comes out as wildly inappropriate and borderline illegal. Um, He is harassing to his employees. He is sexist, sexist. He is racially insensitive. And Toby Flinderson is the human resources manager in that particular office. And Toby's job is to make sure that everyone in that office has a safe and comfortable and fair and non-threatening, non-harassing work environment. And almost everything that Michael does is a problem. Almost everything that Michael does endangers Toby's efforts to make the office safe for everyone else. And what that means is that most of the things that Michael does, Toby has to say no to Michael over and over and over again. When Michael wants to do something goofy, when Michael wants to do something inappropriate, when Michael wants to do something to try to boost morale in the office, Toby is always shooting him down. And Michael hates Toby for this. Because in Michael's mind, the only thing standing between him and his ideal life is Toby Flinderson. Toby is the obstacle. And the reason I mention this is because we all have Toby Flinderson's. We all have someone or something that is standing between us and the good life. Standing between us and the life that we desire, the life that we think that we deserve. And for many of us in this room, the way that Michael feels about Toby is the way that you feel about singleness. It is a subject of pain. It is the only thing standing between you and the life that you desire. If you could just find your soulmate, if you could just find your ideal romantic partner, then you would be set for life. Everything would be okay. Everything would be right in the world. Other areas of your life could be falling apart, but because you have this person, everything would be okay. Others of you in this room, singleness is not a source of pain. It's actually a source of pride. The way that Michael feels about Toby is actually the way that you feel about marriage. The idea of committing yourself to someone for the rest of your life gives you an ulcer. Is this what love requires? To bind myself to another person for the rest of my life and theirs. Can that really be what love requires? I have goals to accomplish. I have dreams to chase. And I don't have time to slow down for love. I don't have time to slow down for a family. 
On the surface, the passage that we're about to read is about these things. It's about singleness. It's about marriage. But I think what you'll see is that as we dig deeper, we will find that it's actually about much more than that. It's, it's about the instinct in all of us to think that happiness is just around the corner. If I can just get rid of Toby Flinderson, then my life will be the way that I want my life to be. Then my life will be worth living. So let's look together at 1 Corinthians chapter 7, various verses from 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Now, concerning the matters about which you wrote, and this is the Apostle Paul writing here, and in this next little section, he's, he's quoting right there. You can see he's quoting from a letter that he received from the members of the church at Corinth. He says this, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this, I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. And to the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call or at the time of his conversion already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts nor for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. But of course, if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freed man of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a bondservant of Christ. You, you were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. Now, concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with the world. For the present form of the world is passing away. Since this is God's word and not my own, let's pray and ask for his help as we study it this evening. Father, would you help us? Would you help us to hear you speak to us through your word tonight? Would you open up our ears? Would you open up our eyes? Would you soften our hearts so that we can receive the good news that you have for us this evening from this passage? We pray these things in the name of Jesus. 
Amen. So we're going to look at three things tonight from this passage. We're going to look at dignity, depth, and eternity. Three things. Dignity and depth and eternity. First, dignity. Right there at the very beginning, in the very first verse, Paul, as we said, is, is quoting from a letter that he received from the church at Corinth. They sent Paul this letter and said, hey, we have all these controversies. We have all these issues rising up in our church. Let us tell you about them. And then will you write back to us and answer us and help us navigate all of these controversies that are going on? And one of the things that they wrote is there was this idea going around in the church that it was not good for people to have sex and to get married. And that's what he's quoting is this problem they, they have posed to him. Because this, the thought was the people who are more holy... The people who are more pious, they didn't need that. They wouldn't need to get married. They wouldn't need sexual relations. And so they wouldn't do that. And yet here, Paul is refuting them. In verse 2, he says, you should get married. He's, he's sort of affirming the dignity of marriage. He picks it up again in verse 9. He says, you, could, you should get married. If you can't exercise self-control, it's better to marry than to burn with passion. Verses 10 and 11, he's speaking to people who are already married. He's saying, if you're already married, don't seek to get out of your marriage. Stay in your marriage. He picks it up again at the end of the passage. If you're already married, stay. Don't get out. He's affirming the dignity of marriage. But at the same time, he's affirming the dignity of singleness. In verse 7, he says, I wish that all were as I myself am. In other words, I wish that all were single like me, unmarried, like I am. He touches on this again in the very next verse. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. So here, in the same breath, Paul is affirming both the dignity of singleness and the dignity of marriage, which was incredibly radical in the ancient world. It was an incredibly radical idea to affirm both singleness and marriage rather than pit them against one another, rather than deify one and demonize the other. You see, in the ancient world, um, to dignify singleness was sort of in the face of Caesar, there was, a, there was a, um, a law that Augustus passed where he would fine widows if they did not get remarried within two years after their husband had died. Because there was this idea in, in Roman culture that um, if you were single for the whole of your life, you would be a drag on society. You were exposing yourself and the rest of your society to incredible risk. Because in that culture, they didn't have a 401k. They didn't have Roth IRAs. Your retirement plan were your children. That was how you knew you were going to be taken care of in ancient life. And so um, if you did not remarry, um, what Augustus was trying to do was incentivize you to remarry by finding you if you didn't. Because if you didn't remarry, you were exposing yourself to the risk of dying in utter loneliness and isolation and abject poverty. And, And Paul, in the face of this, is saying, no, 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 that is not where your value comes from particularly if you're a woman. Your value does not come from the fact that you are attached to a man. One theologian, Stanley Hauerwas from Duke University, put it this way. He says, One clear difference between Christianity and other traditional religions is Christianity's entertainment of the idea of singleness as the paradigm way of life for its followers. Singleness becomes a sign that the church lives by hope rather than biological heirs that brothers and sisters come not through natural generation, but through baptism, that the future of the world and the significance of our future is ultimately up to God rather than us. So Paul is holding up the dignity of singleness and saying, listen, singleness is this living parable of the reality of the kingdom. That an individual's value, an individual's worth, an individual's future are not tied to their family and to their heirs and to their relational st- relationship status and to their money, but they are tied to God and to his people. 
It's an incredibly radical idea. But at the same time, he's holding up the dignity of marriage. Some voices in this church are even saying like, ugh, marriage, gross, sex, gross. We shouldn't do that. And Paul is saying, hang on, let's pump the brakes. This is actually a really good thing. Here in this passage, as we've seen, Paul affirms the dignity of marriage. Elsewhere, particularly in Ephesians 5, Paul elevates marriage and he says, listen, this thing called marriage, this love, this lifelong commitment between husband and wife is not just about the love between husband and wife. It's actually about the love between Jesus and his people, between Jesus and his church. Because what you have in marriage is you have two people who are willing to commit to one another in spite of and sometimes because of their own mess. And not run and hide when things get difficult, but actually stay committed to one another towards one another's good. To pursue one another in love, even when it's hard, even when it's messy, even when they hurt one another. And what Paul is saying is he's saying, listen, marriage is a living parable of the reality of grace. That you can be fully known by another person and not rejected. That somebody can know all of your mess and not run and hide, but actually move towards you in love. And so he's elevating the dignity of marriage. It's a living parable of the reality of grace. Now, we have to be honest about this. The church has not done a great job of holding up both singleness and marriage together at the same time. We tend to uh, deify one and demonize another. We tend to pit them against one another, right? Sometimes we, we uh, deify singleness and, and we'll hear things like in the church, you'll hear, you know, you should be thankful that you're single because the fact that you're single means that you can serve God with reckless abandon, you can do whatever God calls you to do and you can do it greatly and you can, you know, and marriage is hard and scary and difficult. But at other times, in other ways, we elevate marriage to the pinnacle of existence. And this is probably the more common one. We say marriage is really where it's at and singleness is kind of like, eh. And one of the ways that that happens is when people like me, pastors stand up and say, you know, I really never understood grace until I got married. I never really understood grace until until I started to have children. Well, what does that mean? Like, as if to say, like, all of you single people out there, you'll never really understand the gospel as much as I do because I'm married, right? As though God is limited in the way that he can work in your life by your relationship status. It's totally wrong, right? And singleness has its own unique challenges, its own unique frustrations, its own unique pitfalls. And God can use those to work in the life of a single person in the same way that God can use the uniqueness of marriage to work in the life of a married person. So the church has failed in this way, but the culture has failed in this way too. Outside the church, we have the same problem of, of pitting singleness and marriage against one another. Sometimes you hear in the world, okay, um, you should be thankful that you're single, not so that you can serve God's kingdom, but so that you can serve yourself. Because marriage is the old ball and chain, right? It's a straight jacket. It ties you down. and You won't get to do what you want to do. But if you're single, you can do whatever you want, whenever you want. Here's the problem with that. When has doing whatever you want, whenever you want, been a formula for happiness? Living like that is the reason that New York City's playgrounds are a nightmare for my children, right? Because every kid on the playground is like, I'm going to do whatever I want, whenever I want, however I want. And so they're yanking toys from each other and being mean to each other and pushing each other down the slide. And Because everybody's like, well, I'll just do whatever. But that doesn't lead to their flourishing. It doesn't lead to anyone else's flourishing. So why would we encourage adults to live that way? But that's what we do when we say, oh, singleness, you can be free, you can be autonomous, you can do whatever you want, whenever you want. Well, that's not going to actually lead to your happiness or anyone else's. You're actually going to implode in on yourself. At other times, we do the opposite, right? In our culture, we say we've elevated marriage to the pinnacle and we say, oh, you'll never be happy. Your life won't really be fulfilled 
until you find romantic and sexual fulfillment. See, both inside the church and outside the church, we have pitted marriage and singleness against one another. We deify one of them and demonize the other at the same time. And Paul is saying, don't listen to those voices. Don't listen to those voices that pit them against one another. They both have dignity. They both are good. Now, some of you are thinking, okay, that's a nice idea. Um, But knowing the dignity of singleness or knowing the dignity of marriage doesn't necessarily help me all that much because I still want to be married, and yet here I am not married. So what are you going to do about that? Like, what if this never ends, and what if I'm always alone? Or some of you are thinking, okay, I'm still independent. I still want to pursue my life goals, but what if I don't get there? What if my life does not pan out the way that I want it to, the way that I envision it? What do I do with that? And Paul, in light of those questions, draws our attention to two more things. And the first is depth. Look again at verses 17 to 20. He writes, Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of their conversion already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God, each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Now, what is Paul talking about here? How did we move from marriage and singleness to circum... Like, how did we get here? Why is he bringing this up? The reason he's bringing this up is because there's a debate in the church at this time about whether um, Christianity was more appropriately embodied in Judaism or not in Judaism. And so you you have Jews who became Christians who wonder, do I need to become less Jewish in order to become uh, closer to God, in order to really flourish? And you have Gentiles, you have non-Jews who become Christians, and they're wondering, okay, do I need to become more Jewish to be closer to God and to really truly flourish? And then Paul moves on beyond the Jew and Gentile distinction, and he talks about bond servants. And what he's doing there is he's saying, listen, um, it, it's not, this, this question is not exclusive to ethnic boundaries. He's talking about bond servants, and there are bond servants who are wondering, okay, do I need to try to become more free in order to be closer to God? And what Paul is illustrating here in all of these examples is he's saying, listen, there's a temptation in all of us to think that real life is just around the corner. To think that real life is just barely out of reach. If I could just be a little bit more Jewish, or a little bit less Jewish, or a little bit more free, or a little bit less single, or a little bit less busy, or a little bit more in shape, or a little bit less tied down, then I'll really be living. But what does Paul say? Paul says, listen, none of that is the key to your flourishing. There is something deeper than your circumstances that is going to contribute to true flourishing. Look again at verse 22. He says, For he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freed man of the Lord. Likewise, he who was was free when called is a bondservant. What is he saying there? He's saying, listen, if you were a servant when you were called by God, now in Christ you're free. And yet if you were free when you were called by God, now in Christ you're a servant. There's something deeper than your circumstances about you. What does he mean by that? Again, verse 23, you were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. What is he saying there? 
You were bought with a price. You don't belong to Judaism anymore. You don't belong to pagan gods anymore. You don't belong to your master anymore. You belong to Jesus. You belong to Jesus. You were bought with a price. You belong to a father who loves you so much that he sent his own son to purchase you, to redeem you, to make you his own with his blood. And whatever circumstance you find yourself in, that is the deeper reality. That is the foundation underneath your life, regardless of your circumstances. And that is the thing that actually is going to give you peace regardless of your circumstances. I, I tend to stress out a lot about a lot of things, but one of the things that I get anxious about the most is money. I worry about money a lot. I worry about, you know, we live in New York City and it's not exactly a cheap place to live and we have three children and so I worry about when our children get a little bit older and they can't all live in the same room together, what are we going to do? We can't afford a three-bedroom apartment. How's that going to work? I worry about sending three kids to college on a pastor's salary. I worry about retiring. I, I just, I find, I invent things to worry about with respect to money. And sometimes I find myself daydreaming about what it would be like if Mark Zuckerberg were my rich uncle. Because then I wouldn't have to worry anymore. If Mark Zuckerberg were my, were my rich uncle, if I belonged to Mark, 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 Ruckerberg? Mark Zuckerberg, <laughs> Uh, I wouldn't have to worry about money anymore because like, there would be someone who could provide for all of my needs and meet me wherever I was. And if I needed something, I could just call him and be like, yo, Uncle Mark, like, we need a new apartment. And he could sneeze and a million dollars would come out, right? Like, <laughs> and in those daydreams, I'm not stressed out because I'm connected to someone who has everything that I need and can give it to me when I need it. But the reality is, I actually already belong to someone like that. I belong to a God who, as the psalmist puts it, owns the the cattle on a thousand hills. He's richer than my wildest imagination. He created the universe. He created me. He created Mark Zuckerberg. He called me into this life. He will not abandon me in it because he bought me with a price and I belong to him and he will give me exactly what I need. And so when Paul writes to a group of people who are fretting, wringing their hands about singleness and marriage. He does not say, you know what? It's okay. Just wait on God's timing and he will send you the perfect spouse when you're ready. You work on yourself and God will send you the perfect spouse when you're ready. He doesn't say, you know what? You're just a little bit too picky. You just need to lower your standards a little bit, be a little bit less judgmental, and then you'll find the right person. He doesn't say, you know, just focus on serving God, and when you're fully satisfied in Him, then He will give you a spouse. He doesn't say any of that. What does He say? There's something deeper. There's something deeper than your circumstance, than your fear of being alone, than your relationship status, than your achievements and accomplishments. You belong to Jesus. And when you find yourself saying to yourself, if I could just get rid of Toby, if I could just find the right companion, if I could just know, you know, I don't have to get married now. If I could just know that one day I'll get married and I won't be alone. If I could just know that that's the kind of job and salary and life that I'm going to have. If I could just, and the answer is never, I'm almost there, just keep working. The answer that Paul is giving is, I don't know what the future holds. 
but Jesus has me. He's bought me. I belong to him, and he's never letting me go. He's calling us to depth. He's calling us to something deeper. But he doesn't just call us to something deeper. He calls us to something further. Something beyond tomorrow. Something eternal. This is the third point. I, I, uh, for those of you who know me, um, I love Clemson football. And uh, for those of you who really know me, you love to make fun of me about the fact that I love Clemson football. And if you ever have the chance to come over and watch a Clemson football game with me, you will see me at my worst. Um, Because I am pacing around the room, and I am anxious, and I am shouting at the TV, and I am sitting down, and I'm fidgeting, and Megan wants to snuggle up next to me, and I won't let her do it because I'm too anxious, and it's just like, I'm, it's pathetic, honestly, it's really, really pitiful. But sometimes I'm not able to watch the football games when they're actually happening. Sometimes um, you know, I have some other commitment. I'm taking to a, a kid to a football game or something, or a, a soccer game or something like that. I can't watch the game and I have to watch it later. And usually when I'm watching it later, I already know what's happening. I already know who won the game. I already know what the final score was. I probably already know who made all the big plays. I know who got injured and who didn't get injured. I know everything about it. And watching a game where I already know the result is a completely different experience. I'm totally relaxed. I'm not worried at all. I don't fret or worry. I don't yell at the TV. I I just watch the game. I'm actually more free to enjoy it. And the reason is because I know the ending. It's because I know what's going to happen. And knowing that actually helps me to enjoy the present moment more. And that is the logic that Paul is using at the very end of this passage. In verses 25 to 28, he picks up the idea of marriage and singleness again. And he says, listen, if you're married, don't get out. If you're single, don't, don't seek a spouse. But you know what? Actually, if you decide to get married, you've not sinned. It's not that big of a deal. And then he says this, verse 29. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. And those who mourn as though they were not mourning. And those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing. And those who buy as though they had no goods. And those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. What on earth? is Paul jabbering on about here. What is he saying? He's not saying if you're married, you need to get out. Because just two verses before, he said, listen, if you're married, stay in. So what is he saying? Is he contradicting himself? What is he saying? No, he's he's saying this. There's a way to be married that says, this marriage is ultimate. This marriage is all that matters. There's There's a way to mourn that says, these tears are ultimate. The only thing that matters is my sadness. There's a way to rejoice that says, my joy is complete. This is as good as it's going to get. It will never get better than this. There's a way to buy stuff that says, the stuff that I own is all that there is. And Paul is saying, none of that is true. None of that is true. Because he ends this statement in verse 31 by saying, the present form of this world is passing away. What's he saying? It's not ultimate. None of those things are ultimate. From your lowest despair to your highest joy and everything in between, all of it is temporary. All of it is passing away. This is actually a major theme in the book of 1 Corinthians. All throughout the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul is addressing these issues in the Corinthian church in light of eternity. 
There are all kinds of things, all sorts of dysfunctions in this community. They, they think that their wisdom, they're sort of competing with who can be the most wise. And Paul has to remind them, listen, your wisdom is so small. Your wisdom, what you think is wise, is utter foolishness to God. They're living as though their sexual fulfillment is ultimate, and Paul has to correct them. They're living as though their social status in the community is ultimate, and Paul has to correct them. They're living as though their spiritual gifts and their status within the church is ultimate, and Paul has to correct them in light of eternity. And his message over and over again in the book of 1 Corinthians is none of your dysfunction will heal until you see what is ultimate, until you see what is lasting, what is eternal. At the very end of the book, chapter 15, Paul has this very long discourse about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And at the very end of that discourse, this is what he says. He says, Behold, you can look it up later, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall all be changed. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. Then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. What is Paul doing? He's bringing eternity into the present. He's calling eternity to mind. He's saying Jesus will return and the dead will be raised. And what is presently temporary will be raised up again and will be raised imperishable and permanent and ultimate. And this is exactly what Jesus has already done. Jesus took on a perishable body, took on a a physical body. With all of its frailty and all of its vulnerability, he lived a life in that body of perfect and perpetual love. He was tempted and was without sin. As an innocent man, he died for the guilty but he did not stay dead. Three days later, he walked out of his own tomb. He rose from the grave in a real physical body, but in a body that was different, an imperishable body, an eternal body. And this is what will happen to those who put their faith in Jesus. We will all be changed into something that will not pass away, into something that will not be frail. It will not fade. It will not wear down. It will be invincible. It will be impervious to sickness. When Jesus returns and raises you from the dead, if you are in him, you will be raised in a new body that will not fail. It will be impervious to sickness and to sin and to even death. And why is Paul telling us about all of this? What does he mean? He's saying, listen, the game is over. The victory has been won. Jesus has done it. He is not in the tomb anymore. And that future reality changes the way that we experience the present. That victory changes the way we experience today. Because there is a way to be single that says, my singleness is all that matters. My singleness is ultimate, either in your despair or your, or your joy, right? In your despair, in your singleness. Oh, I'll always be lonely. This will never end. And my life is worthless unless I'm not single anymore. Or in your joy in it. I've got all the freedom that I could ever want. My life can be about me. It's a way to live as a single person saying, my singleness is all that really matters. 
But there's also a way to be married that says, my marriage is all that matters. Either in your despair or your joy, in your despair, this marriage is hard. This person that I married is hard. I never thought I could be so lonely in a marriage. And it's hard. And there's a way to actually say this marriage is all that matters in your despair and in your joy. This marriage is the greatest thing ever. And this person that I have married, they're my soulmate. They're all that I ever need. They make me happy. Everything else can fall apart, but I have them. And so I need nothing else. And Paul is saying, whether you're single or you're married, it's fading. It's passing away. It will be replaced by something so glorious that even death itself will be followed up. And between that day and this day, Jesus has you. He has you. You are not alone. He is with you. He is for you. He bought you with a price. And real life is not just around the corner. It's actually right here. In this present moment. With all of its joy and all of its sorrow and all of its anxiety and all of its confusion, real life is actually not around the corner. It's right here in this moment with Jesus. The last few nights, I have been home in time to put our youngest daughter to bed, which is a great privilege, one of my favorite things to do. She's one and a half. Her name is Margaret. And whenever I put the kids to bed, I always sing them a lullaby um, on their way into the bed as I'm laying them down to go to sleep. And the last few nights, as I'm putting Margaret to bed... And I'm singing to her. She will lay her head on my shoulder and kind of drape her arms around my neck and she'll just melt and completely relax in my arms as I'm singing to her. And as I have done that, it has been both a really sweet moment of fatherhood and also a really wonderful picture of of complete and absolute trust. You don't melt in someone else's arms unless you know you can trust them. It's been this wonderful Remind, listen, I am by no means a perfect father. I'm an incredibly flawed father, but she knows daddy has me. He's going to take care of me. And everything is going to be okay. And the question that I have for you is, what would it be like to navigate your life with that kind of trust in Jesus? Where you can melt. And whether you are single or you are married... Whether life is easy or it is hard, you know that no matter what, Jesus has me. That is the kind of trust that Paul is inviting us to here in this passage. Would you pray with me?